Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Word in your attic, a Zoom with a view. But Bob Geldof, the ever-splendid Bob Geldof, fantastic to see you. How are you? All right. I'm very impressed by your imaginary backgrounds that you've just, you know, somehow (laughs) morphed into fun. Look at this, Hepworth, for fuck's sake. That's not an attic. That is screen screen, that is. Screen screen. Yeah, exactly. The ceiling would collapse. It's, It's wallpaper. It's not real. Doesn't it look good, though? It looks great. It looks fantastic. Absolutely. It's coming coming to its own after all this time. No, uh, definitely. So We've where are a, you? Where, where are, are you, Bob? Bob? You're, in, you're in Ireland, aren't you? No, I'm in Faversham. Oh, right. right. And we drag you in from your gardening. Is that right? Yes, you have. I have my weeding gloves here, as we are in at least the beginning of summer. But um, to your interest specifically, um, you know, it's it's a it's a curse for me because everywhere I move to, obviously, you know, everyone wants to circle around the glitterati and the fucking the names and all stuff like that, which of course you understand. Um, Mark Lewison, you know the yeah yeah, he's we know gone, him well. He's just moved into town here. Oh, of course so, he has. Yeah, and um, so I bumped into him in, in the market and that and assailing with all sorts of questions. But he, he's moved into an old antique shop and gutted that out and put, looking at your albums there, put all his files about everything. I mean, like, just extraordinary. What's he on, his third Beatles? No, uh, he's, he's he, hasn't, he hasn't finished the second one yet. It's the second of the big series of three, the last series of three. So it's, yeah. it's to, is it turn on to tune in? Is that, it does that turn on, on isn't it? Yeah. I'm, it, it, it is a life's work. I mean, but you kind of, and I've asked him, like, does he just not get sick of the utter minutiae, you know, and all that? And he goes, no, he's, he's thrilled by it still and just, you know, going through his files and putting it all together. Do you think it's that interesting, ultimately, that in for you, Guy, for you, given the poster behind you, I could see, yes, it probably yeah. is. <laughs> 
<laughs> Beatles in Paris. Well, I, to be honest, I've got a couple of mates who are equally obsessed and hardly a day goes by. I know this is going to sound pathetic when we don't exchange some tiny little bit of information that we've discovered about the Beatles. And I just think it's just one of those perfect stories. It has a perfect beginning. It has a fabulous ending. It's self-contained. They're not still here em embarrassing us by letting us down or in any way depreciating the story. What did you think of the Craig Brown book? Fantastic. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, I knew a lot of it anyway. I'm sure you did, but it's just so well told and so funny. And it's just, he's just a great raconteur. And it's told, all told about people and it's told about events and anecdotes and stories. It's not kind of factual information, is it really? It's just, it's just great yarns. Brilliant. Of course, Lewis and hates it and insists that he ripped yes. off him. <laughs> Well, I think Craig admits that uh, th there's a certain debt there. <laughs> Possibly. That's one way of putting it. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, Bob, have you got some stuff to show us? Because, uh, you know, what we traditionally do is talk about, and I'm pretty sure you were born in Dunleary, weren't you? So can you give us some idea of any record-playing equipment that might have been in the, in the home in, in Dunleary? Uh, when yeah, you were we had, uh, you know, standard for... Uh, our generation, we had the old wind-up gramophone, oh, right. um, yeah. which was which had the baffles that you opened and closed for volume, you know. Yeah. And um, this was adequate for my dad because he didn't, he never really played music. He he wasn't that keen. That there were a couple of seventy-eight classic ones, um, but bizarrely, there was also um, "Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley." Um, you know, by there, was, there wasn't the Kingston Trio that we had one by them, but Hang Down Your Heart, Tom Doody was something. So, you know, pre the stuff that actually Dylan did play and influenced him, you know, I thought it was awful. Um, Hang Down Your Head, Tom. There was a great one by um, which I really liked, a 78. I'm in the jailhouse now. I'm in the jailhouse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Country version of that by oh. Web, somebody Web, and uh, that was I loved that. And then the Geldofs went electric about four years before Bob Dylan by my own <laughs> man putting some wires into the hole where the wind up thing was. <laughs> oh, brilliant! <laughs> and uh, somehow making the thing turn by itself, the turntable <laughs> plugged into the the thing. At which point, my sister had saved up to buy the Shadows. Uh, album. She was a complete Cliff and the Shadows nut, and she shared a bedroom with my elder sister. Uh, and the whole ceiling—it was a big room—and the whole ceiling and walls were covered with Cliff and the Shadows. Though my elder sister was more, she went to see um, Rock Around the Clock, and she'd snuck out to see it with her gang. And she'd, I remember she was sewing her pants the afternoon before to make them sort of, I think what are called Capri pants, you know, because oh, yeah, yeah. went to your calf. Yeah. And she snuck out. And when she came back, my old man found out where she'd gone. He went completely nuts. So she was that generation. Uh, Lynn was Cliff in the Shadows. My mom had died quite a while before my old man was away most of the week selling towels and stuff around the countryside of Ireland, which, you know, didn't lend to much money. Um, but he'd be back on Friday and stuff like that. And uh, my sister, my middle sister was made to take me to see uh, Cliff whenever he pitched up in Dublin, which, which he hated. So I saw Cliff 
and her and Michelle, her mate, used to sit in the front row with flowers, like <laughs> off the great man. My, the physical memory of rock and roll is standing outside the Ormond Hotel, Ormond Quay, Dublin, in November dawn, waiting for Jet Harris to emerge <laughs> from the doors. Uh, she was completely obsessed by Jet, the bass player in the shadows, and his dive. Very Billy Idol look. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Jet just, you know, <laughs> completely off his face, staggered out of the hotel and into whatever waiting taxi was there. So, yeah, that was it. Um, Cliff, I mean, I didn't really like Living Doll and that stuff, but I explored the beach. How old would you have been then, Living Doll? Young, eight, nine, ten. Nine, I remember yeah. first rock. Really, I rem- really I remember hearing Teddy Bear by Elvis, and it was on the radio. We were in Cork, staying with family friends in a summer summer's day like this, and they had a huge living room, big old house, huge living room. And I don't know what I was doing, but maybe five or six, seven, maybe. And I absolutely remember dust motes in the air through the slanted sunlight coming through the big windows and the smell of a dusty day. And suddenly I heard teddy bear, could be because I was a kid and I thought of teddy bears, but I, I it didn't electrify me. I just thought in modern parlance, that's cool. I like that, you know, maybe because it's about teddy bears. Cliff, I didn't mind the shadows. Stars fell on Stockton. I remember that as a track track I like. Great name. Um, And I explored then the B-sides. And that was proper. Things like Apron Strings, which was the back B-side of Living Doll. That's a proper rock and roll. It's it's Cliff at his most Elvis impersonation. And, um, you know... uh, you know, I'm want strings, and he was beautiful. <laughs> you know, on television, he was beautiful boy, and so you get it. Um, Dynamite was a fantastic rock and roll track. I mean, he did have good rock and roll tracks. It, there just wasn't the sense underlying it. So when I heard the Rolling Stones, then all that comes together. So you were know? you hearing that from what Radio Luxembourg, or was it for records being bought back by your sisters? How did you get to hear that stuff? Cliff and the shadows were my sister, but she, you know, as I said, there was no money, so she was saving up for weeks and weeks and weeks pocket money. The first album in the Geldof household was the shadows, that's for sure. Um, and then Radio Luxembourg, I suppose, I remember obviously avidly listening to that or from the age of 11, 12 on. But things weren't great. Um, things were tense. In, in the house. Um, we brought ourselves up because, as I said, mum was dead, dad wasn't around. Uh, my s- eldest sister was 17. She didn't want to be a surrogate mother. She got out quick and married the local copper, who was a great guy, nice guy, kind of became a big brother to me, sort of. Um, and then the middle sister was the family SWAT. So she stayed in very late because there was no point in coming home. She stayed until about eight in school and the nuns gave her 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 tea and stuff like that. And I would uh, just come home on the bus down the road from us, about 150 yards were the O'Connors, Sinead and Joe O'Connor, the great novelist, that family. And beside them was Gary Roberts, who became the guitar player in The Rats. 
So there was a sensibility um, around at that time. And I'd come home on the bus and I guess shared it at one point with a very, very young Sinead and certainly with uh, Joseph, who was two years or three years below me in school. And um, I'd just come back and big old Victorian house, Dublin, foggy or raining, dark, uh, no heating, of course, no phone, no fridge. So I just make, so I, I do my own shopping and make something and then turn on the gas oven and put my feet in the gas oven. And I'd read books and listen to Luxembourg. And literally, that was it for years. So Luxembourg wasn't just a radio station, this improbable micro state was beaming down through the purple rock and roll ether, a golden thread of possibility and potential and other universes. And they were being explored and articulated by those young boys and girls whose names are now etched into contemporary history, Mick and Keith, John and Paul, Pete, Ray, Bob. Who you got to see, didn't you, in the, in the Adelphi, it's the Adelphi Theatre, is it? And, uh, was that the local? Adelphi Cinema. I was in town. We were in we were in Dunleary, which is the suburb from which the boat left for for England, and that that's important because that was always our get out of jail. I mean, quite literally, get out of jail. I mean, I'd sit there and just stare at the boat, wishing myself on it. And it isn't that I wanted to be in the UK; uh, it was that I wanted to be in London because it seemed to be the centre of every thought that I had and uh, we'd get the bus into Dublin again when my sister my dad would I think give her the money to go to see these new pop singers like the Beatles and Bob Dylan and that and it was directly opposite the Gresham Hotel which is still there the Adelphi's gone and they always played the Adelphi there was about five or six big cinemas in Dublin and um, so that's where we went to see Cliff and in one 12-month period, I don't know if it was exactly 63, but middle of 63, 64, whatever, we saw the Beatles, the Stones, and Bob Dylan. Fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. And you were, yeah, you were 12 when you saw the Beatles. Can you remember that Beatles show? My memory is I was under that, but even at that age, my sister would have had to take me. My dad made her, and her and her mate, they all went to the same thing. So... Um, the Beatles was, uh, I, I kind of remember being the only boy that I saw there. And my sister wouldn't let me sit. We were in the stalls and my sister wouldn't let me sit on the, on the um, aisle seat because uh, there was too many people coming up and down and girls going nuts. And do you remember the sort of marbleized green lino that used to run down the aisles on the slant in the cinemas. You know, there was no carpet, it was lino, it was green sort of carpet. And she was on the outside, which annoyed her because I was then beside her and Michelle, her mate, was on the other side of me, but they wanted to be together to, you know, scream or whatever. And I absolutely remember being very excited because one, it was the Beatles, and two, um, all the pre-excitement of, of, of the gig and there were heavy velour draped curtains. My sister was dead set against liking the Beatles because they had, you know, stolen the shadows and cliffs. Oh, right, yeah. so she was going there out of <laughs> obligation because all her mates were going, Beatles, what a schmeatles, you know? <laughs> and there was a gap in the 
I think I was going because I really liked Helen Shapiro. And, um, you know, she was my age and she was number one. And she was Amy Winehouse, but at 11 years old, you yes. know, the big yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff like this. Um, my daughter's come into the room. Go and weed. I thought you were going to do it with me. I am going to do it, Joe, but I've been weeding for an hour, ah. God's sake. Um, and uh, so we were sitting there and next minute we heard what I now know was a snare crack. And I guess it was Ringo just going, just checking his tuning or whatever. And there was this shocked silence because I can't remember. I could, can't, don't remember Helen Spiro. Maybe it wasn't that tour, but definitely I wanted to see her. But by now that kind of didn't matter. And then lights down and the screaming starts and it's parting of curtain. Oh, yeah. And like, fuck. And the place. Look, I've been to Duran Duran. I've been to Take That. I've been to all the screech and scream bands, you know. I have never heard and I went to the Stones the same year. I've never heard a noise, a, a noise so frightening, so primal, so so shocking as this banshee howling, as you know, when, and you, you genuinely couldn't hear much. And there they actually were. You know, you'd heard so much, you'd read so much, you'd seen so much. There were actual people that's George that's George Hart they're actually there there that's mad and that was my sense and then I got frightened because the howl of abandoned femininity femalehood was truly frightening and I looked behind my sister was reaching out and screaming and I looked behind her at the Isle, the linoleum aisle, and rushing down the aisle was streams of female piss, and it was banking up the the dirt from the, the, the your soles of your shoes into little rivulets, little streams of <laughs> urine. And so, for me, the Beatles have always been the smell of female piss. You know, God, this, that's enough detail. <laughs> Amazing. Wait, so I've got to ask you how you got to meet them because you did go, you managed to get, how did that happen that you and your sisters got into the hotel room? I, I think we were on the matinee, which makes even that abandonment even more impressive. Yeah. You know, four in the afternoon. Yeah. And how do you, I mean, I'm sure they were drenched in every single sense, sweat and pee and everything, just drenched with just utter emotion. You know, I mean, I once spoke to George about it, you know, and I, I didn't speak about that gig, uh, you know, and of course they were all sick of talking about the bloody Beatles. But he, he just said, he said, I was in them. He said, I, I know from a distance what you're talking about. I know the effect, but I was in them. I didn't experience that. It was yeah. another gig and, you know, slightly annoyed because couldn't hear what we were doing, you know. Um so we went um, um, across the road to the Gresham Hotel. Uh, we knew they were staying there because it was, you know, 
about five, six hundred people outside all the time. And um, obviously, because there were people in the front, we should go around the back. I don't know whose plan this was, because as I say, I suppose by that time, Michelle and Lynn, my sister, were complete converts now. And, but we went around the, side, the back, back staff doors, you know, the, the push doors were open. Um, concrete steps. This is memory. I hope it's correct. Um, obviously, the Beatles, where are they going to stay? At the very top of the hotel, toppermost of the poppermost. Got to be the Beatles. So we walked all the way up until the stairs stopped, pushed open what I assume now is a fire door, was in a long corridor. At the end, both ends were two big double doors with two in the middle. And this, this memory is very accurate because I've actually stayed in the Beatles stage room as a pop star myself <laughs> without the abandoned femininity, unfortunately. <laughs> I, well, but um, I, we went to whatever appeared to be. And clearly they'd be in the big rooms because it was the Beatles. And they'd all be living in one room. And we were sure of it. I don't know if we'd seen A Hard Day's Night or something like that. Yeah. But obviously they all lived together. So they'd always all stay in the same room when they were on tour. Why wouldn't they? And um, so we knocked on the door. And this young kid, Paul McCartney, answered, All right, yeah, Grace, come in. You know, and we're there like this. And Lynn is clutching the first album which I wasn't mad for and still I'm not mad for. Uh, only interesting in as much as that you could never predict what would happen within the next six years. Just never. It's the great, uh, one of the greatest artistic achievements ever. But you can't tell that from this, okay, album. And we are clutching it. And I don't think we said anything. He just, he said, come in. What? So, but I don't think we expected anything different. You know, people so in Ireland. astonishing that he would just lay A, that there was no security, and B, that he wants you to come in. It's just fantastic. I mean, can you imagine how sick they were of it? You know, yeah. just, you know, so I think, uh, we didn't think much of it because in Ireland, like, people would walk in to your, uh, to your door and say, hi, and, oh, yeah, come in, have a cup of tea. I'm not trying to make it all, you know, yeah. Darby O'Gill and the little yeah, yeah. people. That was, that was <laughs> And uh, so we didn't think much of that, but sitting around was Ringo and George, uh, wait, black waistcoats undone, tie undone, shirt undone. I hope this is a true memory. You know, it seems to be so real that it, it, it's, you know, that that's the way I remember them sitting and I remember them in these outfits. So um, John wasn't there. Uh, I, in my mind, I've made it up that he was doing a press conference somewhere, something like that. I know he wasn't there. And uh, while Paul said, come in, and we walked in and just stared at them, I, I could see that George was pissed off. Like he just took, they were, all, they were all smoking and he just looked up and Ringo just looked bored and just looked at us. What were the Beatles doing? in between their two-hour break between shows. What do you think the three beats were doing in their in their break? Well, if this is your Hard Day's Night fantasy, they were answering their fan mail. Sandy is on the autographs. Yeah. That's correct. You've <laughs> got that right. There were stacks of things, and they were individually writing. Are you, are they mad? Are you mad? What? I suppose professional showbiz. But I don't know yes. thousands of letters, you know. Unbelievable. So, um... No downtime. Anyway, uh, I don't remember. I, 
again, my memory is George just went like, just stared at Paul like that. And I remember yeah. Paul, what? Like that, what? You know, yeah. sort of. You know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, they signed it. We've lost the record. However, <laughs> however. Fantastic. However, however, I had, my sister bought me a packet of sweets to go to the concert with. And I'd finished the sweets or I had one left. Jelly, well, it wasn't a jelly baby, but some, I had one left, but I took it out of, out of the packet and put it in my pocket and I got George to sign the sweet packet. Why George? Who knows? Maybe, maybe we understood we are pushing this now, but I just got George to sign it. Fast forward many, many, many years later, I'm in Dave Stewart's flat in uh, Seven Dials and we're just noodling around on guitars and there's a ring at the doorbell. I'm with my mate, Howard. And Dave goes over to the video phone. Oh, it's George. So George comes up and we, he gets a guitar and we're noodling around. And um, I think Dave starts playing Here Comes the Sun. And um, George, whether he's taking the piss or not, halfway through, he says, what's the next chord? And Dave says, for fuck's sake, you know, you wrote, he goes, I only played it once. I only played it once. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. Um, Yeah. I'm going to go home. Not that late. I don't know, you know. But I'm I'm, I'm freaked out. You know, I'd met George a few times. Um, He'd come to the Rats gig in Oxford when we were beginning to make it in in the Oxford Playhouse, I think. Came backstage um congratulated us i remember our sound guy robbie's californian girlfriend i said uh can't remember name said sarah this is george just just literally like that and george just was used to it and said hello and walked past and i promise you she stood like that for minutes just like this just rooted to the spot so we didn't know each other but i'd met him but i was still you know it's george harrison excuse me so he said, will you give me a lift? And he said, yeah, of course, where are you going? So uh, I was made of eight or something anyway. Howard had this shit sports car and it was top down and it was summer, but it was a bit nippy, maybe 11 at night. And he said, I'll go in the back. There was a narrow bit at the back. George said, I'll go in the back. And I said, I said, no, fuck's sake, you know, I'll go in the back, <laughs> respect. And he goes, no, I'm much smaller. And I said, you're a fucking beak. He said, true. And he sat there. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it was nippy in the back and he had a denim jacket and he took it off and he, he said, put that around you. So um, we dropped him off and said goodbye. And I got in the front and you know, he was tiny. I had the jacket draped over the back of my shoulder, but I forgot, he forgot to ask for I forgot to take it off. So I went home the next day. I called Apple, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe is Dennis, is, you know, the guy doing the what yeah. I don't know. And I said, Listen, George left his jacket. They said, Great, Bob, we'll um, send someone around to pick it up. No one came. I still have the jacket. Yeah. It's got, um, I'm a lumberjack embroidered on the inside of the denim collar. And it's got a mystic tree, you know, embroidered in wool somewhere. And in its breast pocket is my sweet packet from when I was 11 years old with George. Oh, no. Oh, that's that, sweet. That, 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 you put in there. That's so sweet. 
That's lovely. That's fantastic. That's a brilliant story. That's a brilliant story. God, wow. Where else can we go? Yeah. Can you give us a, give us a snapshot briefly of, of, of Dylan at the Adelphi? Because that, that was 65, right? Uh, I don't know whether, but I, the Stones came soon, and that was a whole different otherness. Um, much more guys at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the gangs of Dublin were all there, and um, they came on completely the opposite. They wandered on, you know. I immediately clocked the look, just thought it was uh, wonderful. Didn't seem to give a fuck. This, you know, contemptuous insolence, you know. And uh, they watched it, you know, Mick Mick was very still on stage. Um, Brian was just looking around like this. Keith was impish. People forget this. Keith was the one trying to be Paul. He was trying to be show business. He kept, kept doing this little skip and grinning. And like, you know, um, Bill and Charlie were Bill and Charlie. And Mick just stood there just looking out, just with sort of half sleepy eyes, just staring at nothing really. And um, they did, you know, uh, kind of get a witness. I need you, you, you. And as Mick pointed at a girl, she collapse. I need you, bang, you, bang, you. And the guys would just be hauling them out. But I didn't, I, and he was so beautiful. Mm. You know, all this thing about them being ugly, they just look, do you, I don't know if you've got daughters, do you remember when brats were a thing, those dolls, you know, um, with huge big heads and tufts of hair and tiny little bodies. All the right. Rolling Stones were like brats. They were, they were little people. Yeah. yeah, people with big heads. With big yeah. heads. Isn't that strange? As so many pop stars appear to be. It's an illusion, isn't it? So they were so good, the noise, that 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 rumble of, I don't know what it was, some primal thing. And I genuinely, I didn't want to be Mick. I didn't want to be Keith. I wanted to be them, that gang. I wanted right. to be it, that. And he was very beautiful. And what I now understand as sexy, though I wasn't responding like thing. I just thought, you know, it centered very much on him. It was so like just static and the occasional. So I left that gig having to think what I experienced. And luckily, we had a fantastic record shop in Dunleary, owned by three brothers, Timmy, John and George Murray. And not having anyone at home, I'd spent lots of time in there and, you know, wanting to hear, uh, you know, the who and, and the small faces and that. And they'd be saying, okay, love, you know, you know, and I'd be just lurking, going through the records like in Hepburn's thing, Hepburn's uh, file there. And they'd say, have you heard this? And they'd. Mick and Keith were proselytizers. That's what's weird. Uh, John and Paul weren't. Mick and Keith were constantly saying, don't listen to us. Listen to Howlin' Wolf. Listen to John Lee Hooker. And I'd go and I'd say to uh, Jimmy and George, have you got this person called, you know, and they put it on. And I was rooted, is the correct word, rooted to the spot by this almost invisible music, a nothing note a rumbling voice, but something profound was kicking off in me. So the Dylan was telling me what to read, James Baldwin, Alan Patton, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I devoured all that. And uh, Dylan shows up 
and it's a studenty crowd. I don't have a memory of my sister at that, but maybe she was. And we were in the balcony, uh, and it was studenty and gougers, you know, fucking corner boys. You know what I mean? Yahoos and gougers in Dublin. Dangerous. They're like hair slicked back, but they were at Dillon, you know. And it's a gang, it was a gang town more than it is now, but still a gang town. And um, it was the Tannoy system. And I, I hadn't been up in the balcony. So the Tannoys there were piercingly awful. And when Dylan played the harmonica, it, uh, it, it was awful. And the gougers were saying, Turn the bleeding eyes down, Bob. Dylan <laughs> would go over to the cinema manager to, and like Dylan was ignoring this and like the silence of, you know, um, you know, I don't know, like she's an artist. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. And I, I just loved it. I mean, I just loved it. And they were, Turn the bleeding eyes down, Bob, for fuck's sake, will you? Like, and I was going to, middle-class boy, will you please stop? And of course I couldn't say it, but I, I'd laughed at an Elvis Presley movie at the Dunleary Cinema. I just like laughed at it one, one day. It was so bad, GI Blues or something. And they fucking chased me afterwards to beat me up. And I, I ran down alleys I knew and stuff because I'd laughed at Elvis. So, so this is who we're talking about. And uh, so the noise didn't turn down and he kept playing his harmonica. And then they start. They got a bit really shifty because he wasn't doing tambourine man or something. So they start saying, "Do you tambourine man, Bob? Will you?" Like you know, and of course, the tambourine man didn't happen. So ah, Jesus, Bob, do you fucking Mister Tambourine Man? Will you? And like, eventually, Dylan started beginning to clock, you know, something above the polite applause, you know, <laughs> of the students, and like. He heard them going, and he, I'm sure he didn't understand Tambourine Man, but he eventually got it. And he goes, the next song's, hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. And of course he did something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, come on, Mr. Fucking Tambourine <laughs> You know, that fucking noise is awful. You know, so did it again, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The next song is Mr. Tambourine. He never played it. He just, he just, he just announced every song. What a curmudgeon. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. God, what other singles? Can you remember those other singles? Any first singles you bought? First single was um, Good Vibrations. Oh, right. Um, because uh, I didn't have money. <clears throat> and money could be spent on other things. I could go to Murray's Record Centre. <clears throat> and um, eventually they opened a coffee bar in the basement. There was a coffee bar opposite called The Bamboo. Uh, older people went there, so I was a bit inhibited. But eventually, Jimmy opened up a coffee bar in the basement, your classic coffee bar, black everywhere. The best jukebox, the best jukebox ever. Um, going from, as I say, John Lee Hooker through Chicago, through Tyrannosaurus Rex, through like just constantly changing. And everyone, you know, playing different things. So I got... Um, a kind of half-assed job. It was a shilling in or sixpence, unless you were a regular. I got a sort of half-assed job doing the coffee in there or, or taking the money at the door. So I spent a lot of time there and um, just, you know, I could get the music I wanted, but Good Vibrations was so monumental, a sound to me. Um, Lynn bought, we definitely had the Rolling Stones' first two Albums, which, if you equal them to the Beatles' first album, 
I mean, it just the, the Stones' first album is huge. It's a it's a it's wonderful brilliant. one of the great debut albums ever. I mean, you know, talk about a marking card as to what this band is going to do. You know, uh, so we definitely at that, and I played. Did I buy that? She liked the Stones, but. And also, you know, the whole, you know, from your generation, um, the whole Beatles Stones things, my dad got annoyed by them. Um, and the whole thing was, how can you like that rubbish? You know, at least a bloody beat. Now, this was a conversation with his mates, I remember, um, in the Crofton Hotel, where they quaffed fucking beer and I was given a Britvic fucking orange. <laughs> uh, so he, uh, they were told, what do you make of them fucking Rolling Stones? Oh, look, the state of them, for God's sake, you know. How could they be turned out like that? And the hair, oh, don't mention, don't talk to me about the hair. For God's sake. And he said, at least the Beatles have got some tunes. Actually, they were completely right. Yeah, it was yeah. the hair. Look at them versus tunes. You know, fuck yeah. off, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, that was it. Set, look, standard 1960s thing the difference was i think for we're kind of the same age i think the three of us was that i was a child in the 60s but i was not a child of the 60s and i think you had to emerge from the 50s yeah. to to do the whole other the whole hippie thing and yeah. all that uh, i thought that was middle class shite really and largely still do i you know turn on tune in drop out no don't drop out drop in you know don't tune out tune in you know, that was and that was the message really from Pete and Ray and uh, and um, the period when the Stones went through their social uh, realism period, which was wonderful songs. Um, Jagger's a superb um, lyricist, it never written about very, very, very underrated, you know, clocking Mother's Little Helper, um, yeah, clocking yeah. the flat in St. John's Wood, um, clocking all this as a young man on the make and seeing it as you're going around on, you know, uh, climbing up the social ladder and writing about it, you know, what a drag it is getting old, you know, and all that. Very good. As good as Ray Davies, I'd say, in that area. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think Elvis Costello said at one point that he, he always found the stones at the most interesting when they were starting to go out with posh girls and that this was kind of being reflected in their songs, you know what I mean? Chelsea and all that, all that, suddenly they're dealing in a different world, you know, and it's kind of, it's a stage that successful groups all go through. They're suddenly kind of dating on a different level. I think that's true. The, 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 the genius or the difference that marks you out is standing back from that and understanding what it is that's happening. Other people engage and indulge and get lost. But, you know, being a writer, you know, thinking about what's going on and um, uh, whether it's George moaning about Taxman and, and then Ray Davies doing the same, which is your real life. Uh, are and also looking at Dead End Street and you know uh, and our, our Townsend and stuff like that. Even this, even uh, Marriott, you know. I mean, um, doing that card, uh, horrible song. Um, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, no wonder the other faces were mortified. But it's crap, and I wish it wasn't just um, the one they play of his. But again, his observation. It, Mick has it laid into the stones, really. You know. Uh, I'd be in my favourite room 
with a needle and a spoon and another girl to take my pain away. That's very self People say that he occasionally gets to himself. He doesn't mean to. He doesn't want to. He's a good observer of. He'll never talk about. So these were very clever people. And, you know, they're at the top of pop Mount Olympus because they're very good. And um, my conditions and the little record shop and the time that was in it, uh, I was very open to it. It definitely was the, as I say, the golden thread that these boys and girls dangled down to me that I clung on to ferociously um, and still do, to be honest. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you, do you keep any of the records? Do you keep stuff? Uh, over the years, unlike you, they sort of disappear. And um, But I liked um, that my kids delved in and found them without me pushing this stuff down. Yeah. There. And, you know, what I like about your children sifting and selecting is that it's very Catholic. So I remember um, Loaded, one of my favourite albums, The Velvets, being played a lot. That led to Leonard Cohen. Um, when when Peaches and Picks were Spice Girls, when they were little girls, they had a Spice Girls room of Union Jacks and stuff. They had bunk beds. And um, I got sick of the bloody Spice Girls thing, you know, because, you know, I thought they were a laugh and good. And to be 10 and 11 and to be to- told that you had girl power is very cool. And um, But I was in a phonogram one day, and John Kennedy, I think, was president. He's been the uh, really the one who, who's run Band Aid for the last thirty six years. And you know, my my um, my Lone Ranger, I'm his Tonto, really. Um, he was playing some tape. I said, what, "What's that's really good? What's that?" And he said, "Us, oh, this kid, we're thinking we're signing called Eminem." And um, I got a cassette. 
And I brought it back to the girls and I said, never mind the Spice Girls. It was like my old man with the <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I put it on, but but immediately they got it. Uh, maybe because there was naughty words. No, but not really. They were so into it. Out went the Spice Girls. To this day, that is their lodestar. They are, well, that's Pixie's lodestar, you know, like that's the, the, the one. In fact, yeah, I was down at the used bookshop and I picked up the M&M book and I brought it back to her last week. She said, oh, I've got that. Yeah, of course you do. You know, but... Uh, oh, that's one of the rarest... Uh, does that ever happen? The fathers prescribe the music their children should be listening. They go, great. I agree. <laughs> that's an absolutely extraordinary it's a first. Yeah, Congratulations. It's Jesuitical. Get them at the right age. <laughs> yeah, 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 I guess so. That's amazing. Wow. What, so about, I, what about groups that had an, an impact on, on the way, on stagecraft, on the way you were on stage? Can you think of two or three people that you saw and you thought, I like what they're doing, I like appropriate some of that? Yeah, I mean, obviously the model was the Rolling Stones. We were going to be a twin guitar band um, uh, because that was the noise that we loved. Um but like all groups, including yours, it was an amateur effort that we never thought it was anything. It was something to do. I really didn't want anything to happen because um, I was mortified by me rather than us. I, I couldn't hear us. You know, you're in a tiny little shed, literally in the back of the garden of the flat that I was renting. And um, no, I couldn't really hear it. It sounded just rackety and um, not good rackety, not MC5 rackety or something. I'd written about music the previous year. I was the um, music editor and circulation manager of an underground newspaper in Canada, the sort of Rolling Stone of Canada. Oh, yeah, called, Vancouver, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, Georgia Strait. So this was at a time when Rolling Stone was the local paper and the Berkeley Barb. And I had to I had to be smuggled into, Canada, into America because I was an illegal immigrant. I'd gone to drive... Um, heavy diggers up in the Arctic Circle mining gold. That was what I'd got a job doing that, and I could drive heavy equipment. I'd been working on the M2325 here, and the money was amazing. Um, so I stopped in Vancouver. I came across on the Greyhound with my girlfriend because the job required you had a woman with you because there was nothing to do in the north, and so the guys would just drink and fight and not be able to work the next day. So Daphne and I crossed Canada in the winter and got to Vancouver and I paused to assemble my illegal immigration documents like your NI card and, you know, all this bollocky sort of government stuff, which was relatively easy to get. And then I was up north. But in the meantime, I got bored and went to the hippie part of town, Gastown. Which Can you remember where... what the first piece was that you wrote for, about it, music? It was... Um, The lie I said to the owner and editor, Dan McLeod, still a mate, was I was a journalist on holiday visiting my cousins in Vancouver. Obviously, I didn't have any work with me, but I'd love to cover the local scene. Uh, and if they didn't like what I'd written, don't publish it. He sent me off and I would have covered some local band. I took a picture to <clears throat> with my camera and he published it. Soon I heard about a 16-year-old kid and I and I went to see him. I'd love it to be that I went around to his house, but I don't know. I, anyway, I contacted him and therefore I am responsible for Brian Adams. At this Brian, point. I was going to say, oh, Brian. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so... 
but then to get into um to get into America, I had to get into the back of Dan's car into the boot and drive to the Bellingham border post and <laughs> hop out of Seattle and travel on down to San Francisco where we'd stay with uh, Max Beardsley, who's the editor of the Berkeley Bar. And I got pictures of cool of Alan Ginsberg and Max and me on the beach and stuff. Mad, isn't it? Wonderful. That's wonderful. You know, but, but I booked Lou Reed to come and play in the Commodore Ballroom and John Fahey. Does anyone remember John Fahey? Oh, yeah, of course we do. we do. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I booked Faye. I loved. Oh, he was mad, utter mad fucker. I had to go and pick him up at the border. Why? Because the Canadian police had asked him to open his guitar case, uh, guitar case on the inside of which was taped a fucking autographed picture of Adolf Hitler. Oh um, no! <laughs> autographed. How <laughs> did that get in here? <laughs> I can't. I wasn't there when I closed the case up. Good lord! <laughs> in, in between weeding. I've been sorting out all this stuff. So I found all my illegal immigration papers. I found a letter from John, John Fahey, a long letter, half mad, half great, thanking me for a great time and to come and you know stay with them. So I wish I'd got to stay with them. Absolute nutter, but genius. So these were, I wrote a shit review of George Harrison, solo gig, which was picked up by, uh, Melody Maker was published in Melody Maker. That's also in the other breast pocket of my George Harrison <laughs> jacket. Um, and uh, I loved it. I loved it there. It was the first time that anyone had shown any approbation for anything I'd ever done. And that sort of enlarged me. And I became a sort of small local celeb on radio, you know, holding forth as I do now on everything. Got kicked out by the Mounties. They got their man. I was illegal. Went back to Ireland, applied for a permanent uh, residency in Canada, which I'd have liked in Vancouver. Tried to start an exchange in Mart type paper um, because I'd saved enough money and I wanted to, rock and roll was the instrument of change in my life. Uh, in Canada, it, it articulated, you know, we were, at the time of John Sinclair and, you know, the Detroit Free Press. It was the time of Watergate. So this was all um, expressed through rock and roll and the reviews and the records. I, I knocked it on the head when I got the stylistics. And that was my last review. And the last review was the stylistics, so and so, so. And the review said, this is shit. That was the end. That was the review. And at which point the Mounties knocked on the door and threw me out. Uh, the stylistics are to blame. Anyway, I come back, tried to start this exchange in Mart eBay offline paper, um, which would make money. And then I'd start a rock and roll paper. That was the plan. And that would change Ireland. And in the middle of all this boredom trying to start the paper, um, just, you know, I went to the pub. I, 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 don't, I didn't like going to pubs, still don't. And Gary and Johnny were there. People I kind of knew from around. I knew Johnny's. Older brother was my big mate. And they said they were starting a band. They were at uh, architectural school. And uh, and I said, well, what have you got? They said, Gary had an acoustic guitar and Johnny had an upright piano. I said, yeah, sure. You're not going to, that doesn't make a band. So I held forth on my experience. They said, you be the manager. I said, yeah, okay. So we get together and I go with Gary. He borrows money from his mum. We go into Temple Bar in Dublin and buy fucking great uh, peacock blue 
Tinnacaster, which I suppose today would be worth a fortune. Go back. We bought a Mayatsi amp. And we bought a Mayatsi, which we'd never heard of subsequently, because if you hit, let's say, a Bo Diddley rhythm, dink, 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 the lights on the amp flashed in time. <laughs> <laughs> so we got, a, we got a light show as well. So we went back and Gary started playing uh, Howlin' Wolf um, and Smokestack Lightning. Dun, dun, boom, 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 boom. And I start playing harmonica. I could play harmonica quite well. And I started singing Smokestack Light. And he said, you should be the singer as well. And I said, yeah, okay. So that was it. And the one, th- I really loved Aladdin Sane. And then I went back to Ziggy Stardust. I fucking loved them. I loved Steeler's Wheel at that time. Uh, you know, it's all mad, but to the individual, it makes sense. Yeah. And... Um, we, we tried to play the stuff that we all individually liked and forget it. It was awful. So we just said, hold on. What do we all like? We're all people from 63, 64, 65. What do we all like? So inevitably my generation, inevitably, you know, whatever, all those, those tunes, the small face, the stones. So it turns out that we automatically fell into that. It turned out automatically we could do that stuff. Jerry, the guitar player, gets a gig at his college. 30 quid. He comes back, I've got a gig. And I said, where? And he said, Bolton Street or something. I said, how much? He said, 30 quid. Fuck off, 30 quid, you know. And uh, he said, why? And I said, listen, mate, fucking double that at least. I just really didn't want to play. I was shitting myself. Next day, next Wednesday, practice day, he comes back and says, yeah, they said, okay. That's what? 60 quid. Fuck. (laughs) Fuck, you know. (laughs) So... Uh, we practice like nuts. Oh, the thing, the whole thing that made it work, that summer's afternoon, 1975, I went to my mate's place. He was the rock journalist for the evening paper in Dublin. Fuck no, Kelly. And oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, we're not to manage. Uh, was your manager, was they? Yeah, yeah. Your yeah, manager I and Sinead. Sh- yeah, yeah. Sorry, we're cutting across. A million other people. Fatna was very cool, um, beautiful, sort of like Robert Plant, like Harry and stuff. I went around to his place and he played me Jailbreak um, by Lizzie. But then he played me two records, which completely changed how I thought pop should be done. So the first was um, Catch a Fire. Bob Marley, and I hadn't a fucking clue what this guy was on about. Not a clue. Couldn't understand the rhythms, the beats. I was pissing myself at the patois, uh, the way that he messed with words. So ain't got no birth surfer ticket on me now. That stood in my head because I listened closely to lyrics. I said, hey, hey, Mr. Good, ain't got no birth surfer ticket on me. And it took me a while to three lines into and I chuckled. I thought... And it was like cathedral music. That's that's what I that's what I think I said to Faulkner. Something other about this that's totally wonderful. I did, you know, in my mind, maybe I thought it was Calypso or something, I don't know. Then he played me down by the jetty by the great Dr. Feelgood. And literally that's 
the rats don't exist without Dr. Feelgood and many, 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 many other bands. And it was, if you could have crystallized and assembled every notion I had about what this crap band from Dunleary should be and do, that was it. Pissed off that these guys had arrived at it effortlessly, brilliantly, totally different sound, raw, primal, and words. I couldn't believe you could make such dynamically simple music and put at the top of it standing, watch the towers burning at the break of day. Wow. You know, that's Paul mm. Simon. That's Dylan, you know. Who are these people? Stare at the cover. Amazing. As amazing as the Ramones cover, you know. One as amazing as the Stones cover, first cover. Yeah. I, I, I literally begged, you know, it was hard to borrow albums from your mates. In oh, what a significant moment in your life, Faulkner O'Kelly playing you those records. That's, a, that's yeah. amazing. And uh, ran back to the shed. Uh, to the flat, put it on the record player, um, catch a fire, didn't really get it, but after all the band liked it. I mean, amazing because it's you know hard if you've never heard this stuff before. So something's going on. This is this is really very different and important. And then everyone immediately, right, we'll have to, we'll have down by the jetty and we will learn off every single song exactly, except I couldn't do Brillo. And we got the vibe. There were, there were too many instruments with us, with fingers, piano, and Jerry's. Uh, uh, Gary could do the guitar, but with Jerry there. So it was kind of too much. So we were led inevitably to more complex pop tunes. So that's that's the second album, say. Um, but for the first gig, uh, couldn't find a name. We had shit names like every band. Gary came up with Traction, for fuck's sake. Sorry, spell that, spell that. Traction. Traction, T-R-A-C-T-I-O-N. Yeah, like we're fucking 89 years old. That's a shocker. Yeah, like goodbye, end end of the road for us. It's so soul-sapping, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So deadening of any... So then we started fucking around with very undergrad things like Mark Skid and the Y-Fronts, you know, that sort oh, of dear. And, you know, Gary was at college. Oh, Some of them were at college, and I just saw fuck off, you know. So worse than traction. I said, it's got to be a name that suggests the music long before you ever see the band. And one of my big bugbears at rock and roll in in the summer of 1975 was, who the fuck decided that the definite article would be thrown out of rock and roll? What happened to the who? The small places. Who came up with Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, you know, Pink Floyd? Fuck off! You know, clearly the great bands had the in them. So the first rule is we had to have the, because then you could shorten it. If you became intimate with the band, you just go, yeah, the Stones, you know. So it had to have three names, really, I thought. Oh, I never thought of that. You know, so uh, I came up with the nightlife thugs. So you'd go the thugs and nightlife because you'd have this image of prowling and fog and yellow street lights and corners and alleys. And they were going fucking geld off, you know. Anyway, we didn't put the names in the hat. It just became the nightlife thugs, which we were a bit embarrassed about, me too. 
Come the gig, shitting ourselves, 30 people in the classroom, us on the teacher's raised dais. <laughs> Blackboard says, the nightlife thugs. So off we go. Uh, we start with... What's that track? First track on Down by the Jersey. She does it right. You know, I've got my cap, scarf and coat on, assuming I will be walking off to get the 7A bus after song number one. <laughs> so you got a school cap on, is that right? School cap? No, 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 no a proper, proper uh, James Joycean cap. Oh, um, right, okay. Yeah. I'm back to the audience. Jerry, the fucking, it's such a simple riff. Bam, bam, da-da-da-da. He's shitting himself and goes off on some other trip altogether. Like, and I'm, this is crap. So we just go with whatever Jerry's going with and make up a song on the spot, like you know, that dribbles to its inconsequential end. <laughs> utter silence, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then we kick off. Song three, the sound of clapping percolates through my fear and knowledge that it, this is shite. But I turn around and there's 30 people grouped closely in front of the little platform. And they're just looking at us differently. And I start singing with more confidence and behave with more confidence. And off comes the cap and scarf and coat. And we pause after about an hour and a half. We don't know how long we're meant to play. And two things happen. I'd been reading again Woody Guthrie's great biography, Bound for Glory, which Dylan had told me to read. And uh, that turned me on to the beats. And um, I was rereading it bizarrely the night before the first gig and had come to the spot where he's... Uh, 11 years old, and his dad is an oil man, and they've discovered oil again in some part, I think, not of Oklahoma, but somewhere. And the family have moved yet again to this new boom town. And there's a gang in, in the town, and Woody tries to join it, but they won't have him because he's one of the new itinerants. And they tell him to fuck off, but he does join. And... Uh, Oh, no, I've got it wrong. He's, he's, he's established in this gang, and the new kids arrive with the new oil men, and they're not allowed to join the old gang. It's very snobby. And Woody says, oh, fuck off, and goes and starts a new gang with the new kids, and, they call, and the old gang leader comes off and says, do you want a war? Because they're 12, 13, and Woody says no. And he goes, he goes, who do you think you are? You, 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 you boomtown rats. And I go, yeah, who do we think we are? We think we're boomtown rats. You know, we don't want to cooperate. We don't want to be part of the old gang. And I'd read Which that. has exactly the same scansion as the nightlife thugs, weirdly, isn't it? So it's that it, rhythm is there already. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's such a good name. And it, it you know, when I think Boomtown is in your head, but it was specifically Dublin, really. And um, I said it in the pub beforehand. We were rehearsing the three-part harmony of in the pub of... Um, I'm talking about my baby, not your babe, she's my babe. She's so fine. We were rehearsing that. And then I said, I've been reading this book and like I read the passage. They said, yeah, that's a good name. So halfway through, we take a break. Thank you very much. We'll be returning. We knew everybody in the fucking room. Thank you very much. We'll be returning <laughs> in you know, half an hour. Take a break. Thank you. You know, and uh, this girl who I didn't know, walk up to me 
Now, this is Catholic Ireland in Catholic 1975. This Irish girl walks up to me and said, I'd really like to fuck you. Okay, what? Now it I is the most powerful aphrodisiac, isn't it? Being on a rock and roll stage. <laughs> un unbelievable. If there was ever any doubt in my mind, career-wise, boring fucking exchange in Marti paper are sex apparently on tap, excellent drugs and screaming stadium whores. Hmm, let me think which 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 way was <laughs> career decision. Um, so uh, I said, well, hold on a minute. And I went up to the blackboard and I unscrubbed nightlife thugs and wrote the Boomtown Rats on the board. They said, you've changed your name. I said, yeah. My girlfriend was in the room. So it took a bit of finessing. But I went off with, um, I'd love to fuck you. And she did. And it was, do you remember that book by Erica Jong, The Zipless Fuck? That was right. the first thing that happened to me. A shag without any complications, nothing expected, <clears throat> except that everyone gets off now, and no consequences uh, between the two of you, everybody else perhaps. So the amorality took a bit of road, finessing. Is this, this, could this only the whole chapter in that, isn't it? <laughs> and rats, certainly not a nightlife thug. So that was it. Second gig uh, in Pulafuca, which is a the town and village up in the Dublin Hills, way outside, well, not way, outside Dublin. Rammed. What happened? Rammed, 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 like sweat. And there was no stage. We were on the floor and off we went. And I'd spoken to you about how people looked at us differently, but that's the first time I kind of thought about it. So I looked at the band as this was seriously kicking off, the crowd going nuts. And I look at Gaz, who literally lived down the road, and I'd go in as he was a fucking mad cyclist. I'd go into Trinity College to get, you know, cheap food and play snooker with him on his bike. And he just looked different. I looked over at Fingers. He looked very different. You know, not like the people I was in the pub with. And they were looking at us differently. And towards the end of the evening, I looked up and the barman had stopped serving drinks, not because it was closing time, because he was dancing across the bar on top of the heads almost of the crowd. And that's when I took it seriously. But that was the only that was the first time I thought, maybe there's something going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extraordinary. That's absolutely extraordinary. Because, because, so life changed just in a moment, isn't it? Just you know, this is the direction I'm going to stick to it. Yeah, you it was see a, how addictive that would be. It's it, there was a lot of fumbling to get there. You know, I didn't have a single exam, not a single, not a summer exam, not a Christmas exam, not an O level, not an A level, not a nothing. Yeah, zero. And so a lot of Just endlessly, endlessly going from country to country, town to town, trying to find a job, get cash, put it in your back pocket, move on, until something cropped up. And the Georgia Strait writing about rock and roll, you're sort of on this vortex that's taking you, at least in my case, you know, I, I blagged my way in to see the Rolling Stones in 1971 at the Roundhouse doing Sticky Fingers. I've just found the photographs I took of that. And um, 
I just had two empty camera cases and one Pentax. I had Pressmate. Can you imagine the Rolling Stones? <laughs> and at the Roundhouse. And I obviously got in beforehand because I've got pictures of the setup. I'm obviously there after the gig because there's just paper everywhere on the floor of the, the roundhouse and little Marlon Richards is just by himself, not in a nappy, just out of a nappy, wandering around with the lights on. And I've got pictures of Keith tuning up backstage. How the fuck did I get in there? I've got pictures of Zeppelin um, in the marquee, very close with all the crowd, like heads, you know, heads just sitting there. And... Um, what's his name? Uh, Planty is giving a plant and uh, Paige is giving it like this, but he's really, you know, and there's a roadie beside Bonham crouching down, looking really bored with his hands in his ears. So I couldn't afford to get in there. I was living in a squat, but I have no memory. Oh yeah, the Oval, Rock at the Oval, Rod and the Faces, The Who. I've got Cine movie of that from, from the press Barriers. So yeah. how the, I got backstage in Rod's dressing room, you know, with him just sitting there, just looking at how, <laughs> you know, with the rats, I hitchhiked to Holland to get the first gigs out of Ireland. But the reason I was hitchhiking was to see Bowie on the black and white tour. And um, I think I saw him in Belgium and then hitched down to Amsterdam. I was staying on a DJ's floor, Harry de Winter. And I had a demo of the rats, I think. And I got back. I mean, that concert was just unbelievably beautiful and brilliant. And I get backstage to Bowie. How? Anyway, Bowie's chatting to me like I'm another geezer, except here's the very distant David Bowie, you know. And, uh, <laughs> David. You know. <laughs> He's chatting to me, he said, so who are you? He just looks up, you know, this is like, you know, in the beautiful black and white thing, back to the beats with the, the, the waistcoat and white shirt and all that. Razor thin, like you can see the light shining through him. And he goes, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm in a band in, in Ireland. He goes, yeah, what sort of band? And I said, R&B. He said, oh, I tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, so he's so nice to me, this fucking oik. You know, after a gig, you really, what's he doing hanging around there, you know? And uh, I said, would you sign this? He goes, what is it? I said, it's uh, one of our tapes. He said, it's not one of mine, he said. I said, no, he said, you cheeky fucker, you're like me, he said. And he said, do you not want to give it to me? So I listened to it. I said, no. I said, honestly, you won't like it, so just sign it, please. And uh, I've got that, obviously. And um, in my life, my life is weird. I got to be his friend. And uh, that's not boasting. I'm just, it is a wonderful man, a kind, kind man, the very opposite of what you think. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I think it was just inevitable you'd get to the, either the source or the sump of rock and roll. You get to write some tunes. You get to be with a good band. You get to do all that stuff. I think that was the only possible way I'd end up. And then using it in the same way that I drew a lesson from it, that this is the arbiter of change. This is how you get change. This, is, this articulates change. This posits change. It's simultaneously the rhetoric of change and the platform for that change. That's what I took from it. 
And from all those shit jobs, like working in the abattoir, you get rat trap, which gets to be number one, you know, those those things mm. that happen to you. And uh, I'm not sure if those days are gone. Um, I don't want, you know, I'm too much removed from the currency. But, uh, well, but I got, I got to... I got to uh, participate. And well, now, are you, when stories. when this uh, when this whole bloody war is over, as we say uh, at the moment, uh, are you, you you planning to tour? You're doing some dates in Ireland, aren't you? Sorry, are you are doing you... dates in Ireland? I think you are. No, we're doing the Palladium, Palladium. in uh, October fourteenth. But we we got hammered by everyone got hammered. But um, we did. Um, in March last year, we released um, so um, a, a, an album called Citizens of Boomtown, a book called Tales of Boomtown Glory, oh, yeah. a movie uh, on the BBC, um, three singles, three videos, and a tour, which we announced and had 60% sold Two days later, yeah. uh, lockdown. So really, I mean, we're coming from a zero. I, I brought out, after the rats uh, broke up, I brought out six or seven albums. I was doing really nicely, um, obviously, particularly in Europe. Um, I had become at least critically recognised, sort of as a songwriter kind of thing. So I got that crowd of people at a great solo band, still do. Uh, so I was really happy with the way those things were. But then the others came to me and said, do you want to give it a, a go? Whatever my mood. I, I said, yeah, but if it's shit, if it's nostalgia, absolutely not. So turned out not. Turned out I was just as thrilled and excited by that as I was by the stuff I did in the other part of my life. And I loved been on the stage with that band. I, I mean, I loved it. It wasn't I missed it. It was just, it was absolutely visceral and second nature to me. It must have been so hard not being able to do that for the last 18 months. No, for the last 18 months, no, not at all. It hasn't been. I've, it, hasn't. it hasn't been hard. The frustration of two years' work, though, um, I'm not trying to sell records or bits. It's a really good record. Um, you know, I think yeah, well, I'd say if it wasn't, I'd say if it was, ah, we didn't quite make the next one. No, this is a really good rats, really good rats record. Uh, but that frustration, and then the film is very, very interesting. It's very interesting to watch your own story, you know, from a scans almost. I saw it, it's brilliant. Yeah, and um. So it goes out on the Imagine slot with Yentob and that. And um, we premiered that in Ireland, and that was nice. You know, at the Dublin Film Fed, the president of Ireland came and all those people who were contemporaries of ours and the bands and the young bands, the Fontaines and all those, that crowd. Um, so that was all good. But then two days later, for panic to set in, the tour is immediately, of course, postponed, postponed, postponed until it's worthless. So I don't want to do it really now. I don't want to do a tour. We're locked into a couple of festivals, but I can't see them happening. It means we'd have to go back into full, full rehearsal for an hour in a festival. I love doing the festivals. I love huge crowds. The Rats have to play to huge crowds. They don't really... The, the solo band doesn't need that, but the, the Rats do. The solo bands need theatres and that sort of thing. Um, 
and I, I like doing the Palladium. I'd love to resurrect the revolving stage from Sunday night of the London play. <laughs> is it still there? Does it work? Waving along with the jugglers and comedians. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. All you, when you were young Turks and critics, you hated us doing all that sort of shit, you know, like typical, they're supposed to be credible in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, which I enjoyed thoroughly. Um, so, yeah, it's a great gig. Um the, the Palladium, fabulous sound, a big crowd, proper gig. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. And after that, who knows, you know, am I compelled to try and make it? We've got six tracks that didn't make it on the record, mainly because I don't like more than 10. 10 tracks of anyone's is really enough. If you haven't got the idea, then, and also they must fit, the same as an yeah. artist. Yeah. hanging his latest work in an art gallery. They have to work together. They're, it has to be a complete thing. But as you know, the album as a complete work is gone as an idea. Yeah, yeah. So uh, six, the six tracks, at least six tracks, Pete and I worked up last week into, um, you know, a fit state. Uh, a couple of outliers are, are quite good. Uh, we've got an outstanding video. We've got an outstanding single from the album. So I'll try and get something going before the uh, the Palladium gig and get a smidge and a tickle of interest, perhaps, you know? Right. <laughs> well, no, I'm sure that will do fantastically well. <laughs> sure oh, Bob, will. it's been so nice. Actually, Dave, we traditionally end, don't we? We do. The greatest record ever made. Have you got a suggestion? Bob, for what could you nominate? Or maybe it's something you mentioned choice. already, possibly. I don't Probably know. is of the greatest record ever made. You know, I was moaning because, you know, as I came in from weeding, Ted Cummings told me I'd have to do this. And I said, How do you choose? Like, you know, and it's your mood. He says, you know, like you're in a mood for Van, so you put on Van, but it's one of a hundred albums. It's oh, yeah. uh, it's I want to hear Loaded again. You know, I want to hear New Age. Can I have your autograph? He said to the fat blonde actress. That was one of the best opening lines ever. I want to hear, <laughs> you know, uh, I want to hear, you know, Burning, uh, Bob Marley. I want to hear, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. You know, immediately what pops into my head is something like Blood in the Tracks, uh, Sticky Fingers, uh, you know, loaded, as I said. These things just pop into my head. But do I think they're the greatest albums of all times? No, like I'll hear, oh, there's just CDs all over the car. Just, you know, I just chuck them, I just listen. And I put on one the other day, no idea what it was. No, I put on about a year ago. And it just stunned me. Stunned me. So I parked the car and called the missus out and sit in the car and put it on again because the car systems, you know, it's so enclosed and it's a great mm. in-car It's a Toyota. I recommend just buying them for their in-car system. And that's where I listen to all our mixes and that. I just sit in the car, I park the car outside the house and listen to our to mixes now. What was and that record? I had no idea who it was by. And so I took it down to the local record shop here in Faversham, which is a great record shop. It's a guy called Les who, who shared a flat with Lemmy. He lived with Lemmy. And he's opened uh, this. It's a proper record shop. And um, I played it to Lemmy. He said, that's Kanye. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, 2010. Um, what's it called? It's just a phenomenal record. And uh, is it my favourite album? No, but, it, 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 you know. It just, is today. It's the producer's mind behind it is mm. fabulous. And the lyrics are 
crazy and good and you know just it's a wonder just you kind of go I'm excited yeah, again. Yeah. something happened um so I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna beg off any you can take pick any of the ones I've said and there'd be a million more that you throw at me I'd say yeah that's great obviously down by the jetty um but that's because of the impact on my life. It doesn't mean, you know, stand sitting back and saying that's the greatest album. Of no, all no, time. It, it can no, be no. anything. It can be a, a, a capricious or Those a are brilliant, serious brilliant you want. You want to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Word in your attic. A Zoom with a view. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs> <laughs>